There is a phrase often used, an Englishman's home is his castle, which was coined by an English historian in 1868. He was actually referring to Edward the Confessor, but the legal notion comes from the 16th century, 1505 to be exact. There have been many legal cases based around this particular concept, and as time has gone on, people have taken it not to just mean just a home, house or a dwelling, but any land that you own, you can do with as you wish. But it's absolutely not the case, certainly here in the UK. There are many, many rules and regulations that vary area to area about what you can do with the property you own or can build on land that you own. But this may be one of the few times that interpretation of those rules resulted in the murder of a public servant and serious injury to two other peoples. This was actually captured by news reporters and broadcast on the evening news throughout the UK. This is the murder of Harry Collinson and this is Murder Me on Monday. Got to talking a while back with a friend and colleague about family trees and ancestry and how people could be related and never actually know it. Michelle, this week's case is for you. We are off to the northeast of the UK. Albert Dryden was born on the 12th of May 1940 in Consett, County Durham, England. It was then known as a prominent steelmaking town. It's up on the east coast of the UK, about 14 miles southwest of Newcastle upon Tyne, and about five hours by road from London for our international listeners. Population that's actually dwindling, and it's roughly now about 25,000 residents, so it's not a huge place. It's, it was a steelmaking. Most of the big industries have gone. Now, Albert was the fifth of eight children. There were four boys and four girls. And he was born to Albert and Nora Dryden. His parents were fervent members of the Salvation Army. And I didn't realise that they were actually a worldwide organisation. But for those that don't know, it's an evangelical Christian church. Apparently, his parents were well-liked and respected in the community, and the family home was just a terraced house in concert. Albert Sr. worked for the Concert Iron Company, which I'm assuming is very long gone. Now, Albert Dryden was described as a solitary child with a very active imagination. He did not enjoy schooling and was not academic. He developed an early interest in weapons and firearms and he was described as an avid cowboy fan and Western film lover. In the 1940s, that was the kind of thing they did. They used to go to the cinema on a, you know, on a Saturday morning with a couple of pennies in their pocket. And he acquired his first handgun and an unlicensed World War I Webley Mark, Mark revolver. It's a six shot and it was says the closest he could get to be a, a, a cult that his hero cowboys used in the films that he loved. A schoolmate had actually stolen this gun from his own father and Dryden paid 10 shillings. Now, you've got to ask, adjusted for inflation and decimalisation, it's roughly about £16 in today's money. That's not an accurate representation of the inflation, though, because you, no, can't, no. you can't just buy a gun for £16. It might be what it was equivalent to back then, but what was the average sort of weekly wage? It would have been more than... No, it wasn't. It was coppers. What, the weekly wage? Yeah. So that means this kid spent a last load for a gun, if you account for that kind of inflation. If the average wage was, say, a shilling, he spent equivalent of 16 weeks. That, that, no, no, no. I, I know this, this is a strange tangent to go on, but you knew I would ask this. Yeah, I, yeah, I knew you'd ask this, and that's why I did it. But no, 10 shillings was a lot of money. 
where he got it from. He might have been saving it up for a long time. He might I'm, have been I'm doing so jobs. glad that the UK and everywhere else adapted and started to stop using the shilling because when it was called was it it's, it's something like pound shillings and pence and like that was 240 or something to the pound i don't know i was no, no, a kid. it was it was these are something like 10 10th pence and a guinea that's not farthings a, and... that's not a currency that's a, like a, that sounds like a push bike i'm sorry there's, well, there's, farthings, there's, yeah. there's stu- bits. They're stupid names threatening bits i remember them little brass things but i i was a kid when we went to decimalization they sound like the names of umbalumpas don't they I'm, I'm I'm glad we adopted it to a pound and there's just a hundred of them I remember when I was a kid I used to get confused because there was 60 seconds in a in a minute but my brain would think there's 60 pence in a pound for some reason I'm like ah well <laughs> that rounds up that 60 rounds up to one why doesn't this 60 round up to one yeah that was the thing fair enough thank you English school system yeah anyway so he, he he got this gun that basically had been stolen from his school friend's dad now obviously we are talking this is the the 1950s um We've discussed previous episodes about gun laws in the UK, and even then, um, the lack of ammunition combined with the scarcity of it, difficulty obtaining the correct cartridges, would lead Albert to actually manufacture his own ammunition. He would adapt. The- it's not it's generally now, at least, it's not that hard to make your own ammunition. You basically get the, it looks like a, a wheel, almost one of these things that you'd pull on a like an arcade machine, yeah. and you essentially have like a casing for a gun. It would have been very different for the types of bullets you'd be firing in a six piece so that's a revolver not a pistol there's a difference a, a, a pistol is more fed from the bottom whereas a revolver is we're this, going the, into Tarkov again it's well, no, 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 no it's not because there aren't any in that yeah this it's sort of like a windy thing we have like you have the, the, the shell casing and you sort of like crush it and then cinch it and then it just looks like a really weird like tool it's big it's the size of like a fridge that I've seen but you can get you can get them in your house and you can just manufacture. Now you can. Yeah, no. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. In in those days, no way you could have done that. But now, generally, not that hard to make your own ammunition. Well, he was he was considered to be a hands-on kind of guy. He wasn't academic, so him making his own ammunition was not a stretch of the imagination. Apparently, he adapted .410 short shotgun cartridges, which were easy to come by. It was a, it was a relatively rural area. Um, according to what I read, he, he, it means nothing to me, but I'll still tell you. He shortened the cartridge cases, um, extracted the shot charges, and fashioned and moulded lead bullets. They were crude but usable ammunition. Um, he actually gained a, a local reputation for being able to repair, service and adapt guns and produce ammunition. Although it was all totally legal, illegal and everyone knew it, they still went to him for it. This is a thing. It's for at least three or four of the past podcasts we've done. People that we're clearly talking about them, which means in, they're inevitably going to do something kind of funky. Mm hmm. He's got a skill and he's got knowledge with guns. Why didn't he make that a business? I know you're saying he, he, he didn't. He wasn't particularly successful academically, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have value. The amount of respect I have for people that be, well, my car's making a funny noise and they instantly know what it is just because they've, I, I've they're got, incredibly I, handsy. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I, I don't disagree with you and I don't understand the reason why. We had that, that um, stockbroker who was actually a brilliant... He was really, really good at conning people, but the one time he did try and do it... He's brilliant at conning people, but the, the, the justification or the reason why he was conning people, he was shit at doing it. Yeah, but he, he when, even when he tried to use those skills to be a salesman, he failed abysmally at that. Yeah. So I don't know why, why this guy didn't do it. But in October 1961, Albert was arrested and fined, you're going to like this, for detonating explosives and firing homemade rockets and mortars on Concert Moor. 
On the occasion that led his arrest, he had launched a very large rocket at the vicinity of an RAF Vulcan bomber, which was flying low over the top. Well, did he mean to shoot it at this thing? We don't know. Or did he shoot it and it happened to the, be there? The, the Vulcan yeah. bomber was going over the top, yeah. Um, now, of course, in those days, there were far more local newspapers and they often went to court to watch the local cases and report on local incidents who got fined for driving without insurance or arrested for being drunk and disorderly. But Albert actually told a reporter after that particular incident landed him in court that he planned to emigrate to Argentina where he could fire rockets and guns without disturbing anyone. I'm pretty sure that even in 1961, Argentina wouldn't have allowed that. I was going to ask, is that true? Yeah, no, no, no. So in April 1963, he's back in court. Again, basically a threatening behaviour, telling locals, and I'm quoting, if you interfere with me, I'll fill you full of bullets. No idea what his sentence was for that one. Probably bound over to keep peace, maybe. Mm. So he applied for a firearms licence and had got one in 1957 when he was 17, but I'm assuming it was actually revoked as he applied again and it was refused because of the nature of his previous arrest and the land he intended to use it on was deemed unsafe. So, you know, firing rockets at low-flying RAF bombers is never a, a good move for anybody. So he ignored the fact he didn't have a licence, and he simply continued to handle and procure firearms illegally. Nobody seemed to have bothered to do anything about it. In those days, he would have left school in 1955 at the age of 15. Nothing is said of how he financially supported himself. After all, there was only so much illegal gun trade, even in a rural area like this. But in 1966, he was working at concert, the Concert Steelworks until he was made redundant in 1981. In 1982, he rented a one-acre plot of land in Eliza Lane, Buttsfield, don't laugh, which is a few miles south from his hometown of Concert. Then in 1984, he buys the land outright and renamed it Maryland Close. He put up two greenhouses, a shed, parked a caravan on the land and built an archway at the gated, gated entrance. So far, so good. He could probably... Maybe get away with the caravan on the land. A lot of um, local authorities will let you put them on there because they're not permanent structures mm. and sheds are easy. Now, at least, back then it might be different. They might have been more lenient. Yeah, exactly. But it, we're not that far long ago, really. 19, when was this? We're talking 1984. Okay, 84. It was only 40 years ago. Almost half a, de- half a century it's long enough ago. Okay. There's un- no internet on Amazon back it's then. It's unfortunate that I remember it, but never mind. Um, then in 1988, he hired a, a digger, you know, a land earth mover, and scooped out more than 2,000 tonnes of earth from near the fence with the road and built. And his friends even helped. He didn't do this all on his own. A partly sunken bungalow in the resulting hole forming a screening mound around it, which was apparently inspired by a man who beat the need for planning permission by building a home home completely underground. Now, if you look at the pictures in the links, it reminds me of an attempt to make it something look like a Teletubby's home. Do you remember the Teletubby? Yeah, I remember the Teletubby's home. There was a... a I remember that one. That was my generation. Yeah. There was a footballer, one of the Nevilles, I think, that actually eventually got planning... Isn't his dad one of the... Isn't the dad called Neville Neville? I think so, yeah. 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 There's Phil Neville and... 
one of the others, it's two of them. But he, he eventually, I know he eventually got planning permission to build, basically, it was actually a recreation of the Teletubby place. But he never went ahead with it and built it for some, for whatever reason. I don't know why. There was a, a bit of hoo-ha about it. But when you looked at the plans, you thought to yourself, I could actually see that. It was done in such a way that you did have a lot of natural daylight, but there was the insulation from the... So anyway, so Albert and his mates build this bungalow. It wasn't anything particularly well done either. It was described as ramshackle, but the biggest problem was that Albert wanted to spend his time tinkering with American cars, growing vegetables and keeping livestock, and didn't have planning permission, and he did need it, no matter what he thought and felt, as this land was classified as Greenbelt, a particularly British thing. Question about this. If this man is... I don't, I don't, I don't think the word industrious is the... This is what I'm looking for. But this man is, is clearly quite capable of building these these things. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he pursue planning permission? What is the reason that he didn't do it? If if it's A, that he can't get it... Yes, that was the reason. Why can't he find someone that he can do it? Because surely he must know. I don't think he's stupid enough to think, oh, I'll just build it and I can't do anything about it. Or if I do it, I'll come and shoot them. And then to genuinely think there'll be no ramifications of that. I think your second hypothesis is 100% how true. Can some, how can someone think that? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to understand this person and to think why would that be there i've got no just all i can tell you is what the eventual outcome was i know but what and, he's i'm and speculating he's, as to, as to I've why got, why you would do that i've got no idea it reminds me of that that father that built essentially like a castle on his land and he hid it from the council by having huge hay bales yes that were 20 foot high for example and, yes. he com- and it completely encompassed this thing yes and he had a he had a castle behind this hay. Yeah. And then eventually when they found out about it and we saw all the insides, it looked really good. And mm. I, I don't know if they knocked it down in the end. That one went down. There was another one that managed... If you if you managed to keep it hidden, um, but lived in, I think it was 10 or 20 years, something ridiculous like that. And after then, they couldn't do anything about it. One guy got away with it, and the one you're talking about, I think it looked like a castle from one side, and the other castle, the other side looked Georgian. It it was like a split, yeah. split. It was peculiar, but it, yeah. But he, again, he built it on Greenbelt land, and he was never ever going to get planning permission for it. And can you explain what Greenbelt land is? Right. So Greenbelt land, um, particularly British thing. I don't think I've ever heard of it anywhere else. But it, there are, um, I know other countries do have similar regulations. But Greenbelt is actually defined as an area of land protected from development. Greenbelt land surrounds cities and towns to inhibit urban sprawl, prevent neighbouring towns merging into one another, preserve the countryside and the setting and character of historic towns. I know it doesn't always work. We have what's also known as brownfield sites. So you may have had um, a factory unit from a business that's long ago gone defunct. They will knock the, the factory unit down and they will allow housing on that because that is a brown field site and where we used to live there was a, an old factory area actually slap bang in the middle of town um, and they did build a huge housing development on that and that saved Greenbelt land mm. but they are slowly but surely unfortunately a lot of places certainly in the southeast of England allowing building on Greenbelt land and it does it joins towns and cities and villages up and you you can't literally you suddenly realise that your town is now adjoined to the other town and you're not separate entities anymore. It's quite an odd thing. So I understand why they want to keep it. Sometimes they will allow 
um, things to be built on green belt land. Usually if it's got um, an, archi- um, an agricultural requirement, say uh, cow sheds or something along those kind of lines, they will allow that. But dwellings and factories, no. Yeah, especially with things like factories, there'll be a concern for the increased noise pollution, air yeah. pollution, etc., etc. I'm assuming as well, if, say, you want you bought a, an old farmhouse that was... It would cost more than the building was worth to renovate it. They would probably let you knock that down and build a new one as long as it was sympathetic to the area. They mm. wouldn't let you ma- put a McMansion up. Uh, where is it? Uh, I... Th- I don't remember. I don't remember the place, and this is going to be a really bad anecdote as a result. But say in, there's there's certain uh, houses along a like a specific river in America, and they're like huge mansions kind of things, and you, you have to build them along in the same style as the surrounding houses, so that mm-hmm. it has a theme. I think in some of the Netherlands, certain houses have to look that they, they have to follow the same architecture, so it's yeah. in keeping with the place. But this guy was like, ah, here's twenty million to the the local council. Is and that it, Hadid's Bella Bella and? Oh. I, I don't know. I don't. Um, I I heard Mohammed this. Hadid, I heard this I anecdote from another podcast. <laughs> One thing that happens is when you consume a lot of media, and you this via osmosis, you gain that anecdote, and it becomes part of your general knowledge. And then when you tell it again, you're like, ah, shit, that's just come from somewhere else. And then eventually, you're like, all I am is just content from other people that are just now me. Like, where do I begin and where does this other podcast end? But yeah, they did this with this house and they just sort of chucked 20 million at the local I think that's government. And then they were like, eh, it's fine. Just build what you want. Go on, do it. No, uh, he, he hasn't. If it's who I think it is, no, they've not let him do it. And they're making him take this place down. It is, yeah, definitely 20, 30 million. It, it might well be the same one, but it's what I've heard where they're, they're, if, they, if you just chuck enough money at it, you can bypass. Some, some councils, yeah. But this one, this this council where this all goes through, um, I didn't, it, it's defunct. So I didn't, it's got a very, very long name, but so I didn't bother using it. So I'll just call it the council. They got rid of it. They they moved all the borders around and it got swallowed up by another, you know, local authority area. So 1989, the council... Did this man re- ever get married? What? Did this man ever get married? No. And he seems to have lived at home. When his father died, we don't know, but obviously his dad did die. And he seems to have lived at home with his mum all the time. Never okay. got married. Which actually is, you know, it may well sort of all tie into some of this. 1989, council had received its first complaints about this bungalow with Albert lying variously that it was a new summer house for his 82-year-old mother. Remember, she lived four and a half miles away. It wasn't exactly at the bottom of her garden, which goes to your point. Why did he not buy land that he could get planning permission on? Doesn't make sense. It was a nuclear shelter. It would have still needed bloody planning permission. And then a cattle shed. Now, the cattle shed is actually a red flag later, as he he was told he could keep that if he made it a real cattle shed. So I'm assuming take the windows out, and you know, whatever. And he refused. So he's become bullheaded at this point. I'm doing what I want and you can't tell me. Now, there were many, many meetings with the council. Albert threatened officials that they faced the risk of being shot or blown up and he even as physically assaulted one visiting official. I'm not one for physical force by, by the police or authoritarian regimes. But at this point when this guy is saying, I don't care about the rules... I'm going to kill people. I don't think you should go in there guns blazing and remove him, but you should probably give this man some reverence 
take him quite seriously or consider what he's saying. I'm not saying I, I don't. I don't mean by any stretch to allow him to do it, but kind of think, hang on. This, but he's this got guy's form. A- he's got form for. Bloody well shooting at an Aria Vulcan yeah, bomber. Exactly. They should so have taken this, him more this serious. This kind of dodgy. Yeah. Now, the, you've got this this council officer. His name's Harry Collinson. And he and Albert Dryden formed this relationship, shall we say. They weren't friends, but Albert would regularly go and see him. And uh, Harry would quite happily spend many hours when he was probably up to his neck in work talking Albert through all his various options, all the rules, all the things he could and couldn't do. They didn't try and get one over on him. Mm. They they tried to deal with him, honestly, and it was, he was, no, I want to do what I want to do. The council issues an order to demolish this building, this house, this bungalow. So there was a public inquiry which launched in January of 1990. And a friend of Albert's tossed a live cockerel at the planning officer's face in the planning department meeting. A live cockerel? A live cockerel, yeah. Um, these, these planning office meetings are often open to the public. Sometimes they're, they're closed, but yeah. It, it takes a special kind of person to lob a live cockerel. At Why do you throw a bird at someone? What's that going to achieve? Uh, I don't know. So Albert lost his appeal in the March... Although the government inspector who chaired the hearing said some of the other buildings could stay because of the time that they'd been there. How long had they been there for at that point? Well, he he bought that land in um, 84. So by night, so they'd been there six years. They didn't have to let him, Hmm. but they were trying to do the right thing whilst trying not to let somebody get away with something because then you could bet your bottom dollar somebody else down the road to do exactly the same thing and say, well, he did it, so I want to do it. You know, the usual sort of stuff. But Albert's mother passed away in the April, aged 82, and he blamed it on the council persecution. Well, she did was, he claim it was the stress? Yeah, but she was 82, for goodness sake. You know, that's a, that's a good evening. But eventually... The council officials... Besides, he's the one doing the thing that's wrong. If she was just living in a house and she was getting hounded by the government or by the council, you can understand it. But when you're... If you're blaring music really loud and you're getting told off about it, and then you're complaining that you being told off is causing you stress, stop playing the music. Yeah, I that's can imagine she's, she's still living in her original little house in concert, this little, um, this little terrace, you know, house... And I imagine him coming home from staying in the caravan and all the rest of it and ranting and raving about what all the plants council planning of. She probably did the stress that kill her, but it was him. Yeah. So eventually the council officials and workers arrived on the 20th of June 1991 to demolish the building. The council decided to announce the date and time of the demolition in advance because there was such media interest in the story. It could have gone unannounced, but the council wanted to be seen to be acting fairly and legally. The council's plans were to go to the site with a team of demolition contractors and if they met any resistance, to turn back and seek a court order to get access. So, again, they're absolutely playing fair. The police were consulted and they voiced their opposition to this public demolition. Some of Albert's supporters um, are later quoted as saying that the presence of journalists and a TV camera may have put pressure on Albert to take the ultimate step. But I do, I do think it's kind of it, it's it's exacerbatory. Yeah, exacerbating it. Yeah, but the council's um, perception of it, they hoped that 
his behaviour would be muted because there were because so many... Because you're going to be under some form of media scrutiny. It's going to be... If you get naked and start screaming and running at people, that's going to get put in the paper. You might think that might make you act a bit more civil. That's why having, like, uh, uh, cameras on police and stuff, you like to think you'll yeah. control themselves or... Body cams and all the like, but yeah. I think for for someone like this, who's who's by the sounds of it is super anti-authoritarian or being told what to do in any sense, mm. being quite anti-government, even by the sounds of it, by having any anyone that has a jurisdiction over him, he mm. doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. So by having the media oh, there... How he, he lasted his job all that time and getting fired, I don't know. He's probably going to think that the media's against him as well because they're mm-hmm. going to paint him in a bad light. So that's, that's just going to piss him off more. And someone who's, whose hobby is building bombs and guns and trying to blow stuff up... Don't do that. Well, there were there were a lot. Um, I, Have you seen Hot Fuzz? That movie. With no, Simon Pegg? I haven't. I know of it. But I haven't seen it. There's a scene where they, they 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 need to get loads of guns, right? And they go to this old farmer. He's already hey here. You really can't understand him. You'd have you need to have two translators in between them to be able to understand it. Oh God! It, it goes so farmer accent that there's one person you can just about understand speaks to the one you can't understand. And like, have you got any guns? And he's like, yeah, we've got some guns. And then they open up sort of what this guy's house looks like I imagine and it's just completely lined with about 400 guns and a sea mine in the corner you know the one that's got the spikes on if it if once I compress oh it blows yeah. up that's what I'm picturing with this this guy's I, I, little I, I, hobbit hole oh, there are some people listening to this that go oh shit yeah that's not that hot fuzz and they're going to agree with me you, 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 you. I know you haven't seen you haven't seen my notes so hold that thought is all I'm going to say so I just showed Mother the that clip from Hot Fuzz where they go see the farmer. Yeah, it didn't far off about that. But... Cut, about cutting down a hedge and then he goes, have you got a license to that firearm? And he goes, yeah, I'll do this one. And they go into the shed and there's 400 guns inside. And, this and a sea mine. mine. Which some guy, I think in Wales, not so long ago, found one on the sea line and rolled it home to use as an ornament in his garden. And the damn thing hadn't been de- deactivated. And of course, yes, everybody and had a meltdown and they called everybody in. And All it takes is one of those probes to compress on the side and it activates the charge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, bless him. So now back to the case. The problem was Albert didn't really understand this whole planning process and system. How can you not understand it when this this friend of his that he made, uh, Harry Collinson, because he, he, you, said, you, you said that they spent hours and hours talking yeah. together to... Yeah. To help this man go through the proper things. And he yeah. says, no, I want to do it this way. How does he not understand it by this point? I don't, I don't, I've got no answer for you why he doesn't understand it, but he does desperately doesn't seem to actually comprehend it. Or, or is it just a matter of him completely disagreeing and then because he doesn't agree with it, it doesn't yeah, exist? I, I think there's a point where we've possibly reached where he doesn't seem to believe anything he's been told to, to him by anybody in authority. He had actually contacted, so he's, he's not stupid, he'd contacted the planning inspectorate, which is like the overall arching government body, saying he wanted to appeal yet again. They wrote back saying nothing could be done to his property in an appeal until an appeal was heard. But it was a bog standard pro forma letter. It didn't say that he could appeal, but that's how we took it. So it was it was basically acknowledging his request to appeal. They couldn't do anything to it until they'd heard the appeal, but it didn't say he had a right to it. They're badly worded. It's like a lot of government forms. They're badly worded. If he'd have had the sense to ask somebody else... What does this? If he'd have had his own proper solicitor and he'd have said, "What does this actually mean?" It was solicitor would have been able to tell him, but he didn't. The letter to say that he had exhausted all his appeals didn't arrive by post until after this event. That's handy. Yeah. So, 
Sergeant and two police constables arrive at Albert's bungalow. A police armed response vehicle and an ambulance are on standby at Concert Police Station. And Albert promises the sergeant, there'll be no trouble. He put the letter from the planning inspector on the gate at the entrance to his property. Harry Collinson, the planning officer, and the council solicitor, Michael Dunstan, came to the gate, looked at the letter and told him it contained nothing to prevent the demolition. Now, Albert was absolutely convinced that this was, you're going to get another appeal. And he kept saying... You only have to wait five weeks. None of this has to go down. Just give it another five weeks and then we'll have this appeal and it'll all be sorted. I kind of feel bad for him. I, I can't... Because he... And I, I don't want to say this seems to be some kind of intelligence barrier stopping this man from understanding, but I'm picturing just this, this, this person who's desperately trying to cling on to what he's built and he doesn't want to let it go. Yeah, I think you get to the point of no return and I think this is I'm what... kind of sympathetic towards him. Not towards anything he's done or has done because we don't know what he's done. He might not be the bad guy, you don't know. <laughs> it could be the sea mine that's the problem. But yeah, I just kind of feel sympathetic towards him because he thinks, oh, it's, just, it, it's almost like a person that's, oh, I just need this one win and I'll get out of it. Yeah, exactly. I, ju- I just need this five-week thing for my... Yeah. So... Albert tells the film crew that's Hopefully there... Hopefully other people feel that, and it's not just me. I'm not sympathising with the bad guy. Yeah, he tells the film crew that's actually there filming this for the news, you not, might not be around to see the outcome of this disaster. So I'm assuming the film crew are like, what? Harry Collinson, the planning officer, told Albert he could have time to move things out of the building... And they said to him, you can move all your animals out and he said, the RSPCA is on the way and all the rest of it. And he said, but you, said, you need to get everything out of that bungalow. It's going down. Albert moves to a point in the fence where the bulldozer was aiming to go through it. Sorry, it, was, it wasn't Albert. It was Harry Collinson. He moved. I'm actually replaying the video in my head as well as I'm, I'm saying this. Albert went to this caravan and he picked up a first, this First World War revolver strode back to the fence and drew... He actually had a a, a holster on his hip. Yeah, Yeah. but it was... It really did look like it's something he'd cobbled together from old bits of leather. And he had this on his hip. And Harry Collinson stood there and he looked at him and he looked at the gun and Albert Dryden just stood there pointing this gun at him. And Harry Collinson said to the film crew, can you get a shot of this? Unfortunate term. Albert levels his gun... And shoots him, shoots Harry once in the chest, close range. Albert pushes his hand through the fence and fires off three or four more shots, hitting a BBC reporter, a guy called Tony Belmont, in the arm. One shot also hits one of the police constables close by and it, it hits him, it's just shy of his spine. How he didn't end up paralysed, I do not know. So that all the observers, the journalists, officials and the police, they run along the lane towards motorway. Albert climbs over a fence and goes up to Harry Collinson's body, which is now laying in a ditch, and shoots him once more. So now you've gone past the point of no return. Yeah, absolutely. That was a, you know, a police superintendent and an inspector arrive in a police car from the opposite end of the lane where this was going on. Albert reloads and fires at the police car, which reverses away at high speed. So it's also almost like Keystone Cops as it's trying to zigzag up the road. Is this, is this the same 
six shooter that he had before. Yeah. He, he has to be out of bullets soon. It keeps, no, he keeps reloading it. That, that gives you... You've got enough time there to do something. Well, you? well, right. He fires shots at a bulldozer, you know, an earth mover, a low loader, and a parked car. He takes the windows out, and he goes up and he shoots Harry once more in the chest. So at this point, he's had a complete psychotic break. But what did he think would achieve? I think I said this before. What do you think we would achieve from doing this? They think, ah, oh, he really wants to keep this house. Just let him keep it now. This person who's attempted to kill three or four people. I see. I, yeah. What sort of idiot do you have to be to think that that is going to be successful? That is going to be the successful line for things to go down. If I down. rob this bank, it will help me pay off all my bank gambling debts. debts. <laughs> You know, it, it, there is no logic to any of this. So Albert walks back to this caravan he's got. Twelve minutes after the shootings, the police armed response vehicle arrive. They take up position about 25 foot away from the caravan and try and talk with Albert. A tactical firearms team arrives, including police from the, the headquarters in Durham. So a sergeant from the TAC unit approaches the caravan carrying a field tele- telephone. You know, the, the funny old, yeah, forerunners of mo- mobiles, really. And Albert agrees to use it to maintain contact with the police. Albert walked to the perimeter fence to watch the sergeant connect the phone. And seeing that Albert's holster was empty, he didn't actually have the gun on him, the sergeant tackles him and two PCs basically scramble over the fence and they pin him to the ground and they arrest him. Albert claims the land, this you know, acreage, is mined and the bungalow is booby-trapped. So a bomb disposal squad are called in from Catterick, which is a huge, huge army barracks fairly nearby. But on arrival, for I don't know why, they decided to call in the 521 Company 11th Ordnance Battalion from down south. They, they had to wait. So after a two-day electronic and manual sweep of the land, no explosives were found. Officers, however, did find nine guns, including the murder weapon, in the bungalow, and a further 33 weapons are found at his mother's house. Among the haul were 10 handguns, 15 rifles, three shotguns, two homemade mortars, an improvised... A mortar? Mortar. An improvised propane bomb and a 20mm cannon... Why do you have a mortar? Maybe he was looking to blow cows I understand what a mortar is. You, I... you drop it in a tube and it thump and, yeah. it, and it yeah. jettisons itself. And you can use it to get insane We businesses. We know somebody distantly who is involved in the film industry, special effects. When I, when I read the crib notes for this case, I thought, oh, that sounds like him. Yeah. And mother agreed. Yeah. And it, this is, this is, what Albert was doing was exactly what this person that we know started off doing, but in a small scale. On a much smaller scale, who's, who do stuff he like... He didn't have guns, but he did blow, blow things up. up. cow pats and things. Yeah. There's, there's, there's an anecdote of him. Uh, he built... He attached a jet engine to the back of a, of a truck for whatever reason, like you do. Turned it on, blah, blah, blah. It, it worked without realising quite how close one of his other cars was parked to the back of this jet engine and sort of half melted the back of this car. I think in the end they actually used it for one of the cars they blow up in the Avengers for a specific scene, something like that. His horse, he's got horses on this land. They're not scared of the jet engine noises, the explosions, but they'll shit themselves when they see Chris Packett. They're just yeah. going to get scared by sparkly stuff. And it's just, this sounds like this guy where someone who's been blowing things up for years but 
became a pyrotechnic for the movie industry. Yeah, he, 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 he could have done some good, but as we know, these people don't seem to. He, yeah, so we've got Harry Collinson dead. We've got a, a BBC News reporter with a, shock, uh, a bullet to the arm. And we've got a police constable. I don't know if the bullet was removed, but it, it was very, very close to his spine. So we've got two injured, one dead. July the 1st, 1991. This, happened on the, this all happened on the 20th of June. July the 1st. Albert makes an appearance at Concert Magistrates charged with murder and attempted murder. A hundred people turned out to support him with shouts of good luck, Albie, and more than 3,000 people sign a petition calling for an inquiry. When it's something like that, it's more of an appeal to popularity. They're, they're seeing... It's, it's like if one of your favourite movie stars or celebrity or influencers, content creators online, they do something and you think that's that's so much out of character where, say, because someone gets caught in a scandal, you refuse to believe that yeah, they were caught I... in the scandal despite the overwhelming evidence and literal film crews documenting what this person did. I think the thing was he was considered a local eccentric that everybody liked yeah. and or, he was or nice. Or if you and... empathise with what happened to him, if, if you think, yeah, I kind of agree that it should be fair, the government can take away what you've built, even though, by your rights, you shouldn't have done these things. But if they're empathising with him, then of course they're going to be mm. your side. That's why stuff like the appeal to popular... to I think, it's a, I think it's called appeal to populum. Well, that might be the amount of people agree with it. It doesn't always mean the yeah. fallacy is true. yeah. Albert was actually tried at Newcastle-upon-Tyne Crown Court in March of 1992. He was charged with murder, two counts of attempted murder and an alternative charge of wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. So he entered pleas of not guilty to all charges on the grounds of diminished responsibility. After 13 days of evidence, the jury took just two hours of deliberation before finding Albert guilty of Harry Collinson's murder guilty of the attempted murder and guilty of wounding. Albert was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder, life imprisonment for the attempted murder and two terms of seven years each for the wounding, all to be served concurrently. The judge said at sentencing, your state of mind on June the 20th was abnormal, but not abnormal to the extent of diminishing your responsibility for what you did. You are a dangerous man. Now, it was actually hard to find if he was given a minimum sentence, but I'm thinking it was one of these until such time as they're no longer considered dangerous. You'll see as we go, and he wasn't let out after the usual 10 years that we seem to see a lot of. Now, um, Albert appealed against his conviction and it was dismissed February 1994. He also made four applications for parole, all of which were rejected as he showed no remorse for his crimes. While he was in prison... Albert maintained that he had been the victim of a high-level Masonic conspiracy, that Harry Collinson had been a golfing partner of the Chief Constable of Durham Constabulary, despite Harry Collinson being neither a Freemason nor a golfer, and Albert also claimed that the prison authorities were attempting to poison him. Albert also... Will... You know that part where they said diminished mental capacity, but not enough? I think I think he was. Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I think there may have been some personality disorder in this somewhere. Albert also wore out five firms of solicitors and one barristers. So they've just gone like, no, we're not working with you anymore. You know, he mm. just got too much. So while he was serving out his sentence, he actually lets a former firearms officer visit him three times in prison. And he was one of the guys that was on the scene, a guy called um, Detective Sergeant David Blackie. He's written a book and I'll put the link in the show notes. 
The former detective sergeant also managed to get permission to do a tape-recorded interview at a later time, having to submit the questions he was going to ask Albert beforehand. That didn't go well. Same as his face-to-face visits, Albert refused to have anything to do with him ever again. The, the, basically, Dryden, Eric, uh, Albert Dryden just played the victim. Everyone was against him. All the others in the prison, they're rapists and terrorists and harm done by, I don't know why I'm here. He seemed to accept absolutely no responsibility for the fact that one guy was dead and it was everyone else's fault. If they'd done what they'd done, none of this would have had sort of happened sort of stuff. Yeah. So the prison service um, moved him about to try and keep him happy because he was constantly falling out with other prisoners. And I think they were afraid of him getting violent. Excessively violent. No, I think they were more afraid of um, him being assaulted and then him suing them because that's the kind of person he was. Um, They even move him to a prison near his home and that is very, very rare that that happens. But that still wasn't good enough. He fell out with everybody in that prison and they had to move him again. He's a ritualistic victim, despite him himself creating victims by shooting people. Yep. So in October 2017... Okay, obviously there are a lot of case instances where this isn't the thing, but if you if you keep getting into car accidents, there's not other people on the road, it's you, you're doing something funny with the car mm-hmm. to get into constant car accidents. If you're, if you're the problem with every single person in the prison, it might not be everyone else. It might be you. Well, if there's a repeat pattern, yeah. Yeah, which in, is... in multiple groups, you could argue that maybe other people in that prison, if they see one person being mean to you, then they have to... It's a pecking order. Yes, it might have to happen, but if you repeatedly bounce around prisons and it keeps happening, it's you. It's you at that point. Yeah. So in October of 2017, so he'd been in prison 26 years by this point. Then How old I, is he? Then he's, he's aged 76 now. He has a stroke. And he was released from prison on compassionate grounds and sent to a care home in Durham. Albert Dryden died at the age of 77 on the 15th of September 2018. And it's what people had to say about him after is still very interesting. Is he, he still seems to have had people that would still to this day stand up for him. There was a county councillor who served as a leader of the district council at the time. He'd known him since childhood. And he says... He had known Albert since yeah, childhood. You cannot excuse him for what he did. But he was a proud man. And all he wanted to do was build his house and live in the countryside on his own and not harm anybody. It was not planned, but the way he saw it, he was defending his castle. It was said that he was not remorseful about killing Harry Collinson, but he was. I know, and having seen him, it was good to see him before he died. He was just a man who wanted to get on with his hobbies. He was obsessed with weapons from that era, and that was the way he was. He did not mean anyone any harm. I'm thinking pointing a bloody gun at someone, you do mean harm. You Not don't just point- pointing a gun at someone, but pointing a gun at multiple people and shooting them. Yeah. The, the saying is during firearms training, if you, you don't point your gun at something, you don't intend to kill. Mm-hmm. He's Again, he goes back to it. He says, in defending his home, he had committed murder and he was given a life sentence. I know you cannot bring Harry back. It's a difficult one. And he said, Albert asked to see me about three weeks ago. He asked a friend to get me to see him, so I went. Um, I had not previously. He had no quality of life. He had suffered a string of strokes. It was awful to see him in such a state. Harry has lost his life and the children lost their father because Harry was divorced and he did have children. But Albert lost his life as well. He had a burden to carry. It was a facial expression that gave, that showed that he was regretful. He could not talk. It was in his eyes. 
I went through photographs with him. In his own way, he expressed his regret. He has paid the penalty now. I think he was trying to make his peace. This county councillor wasn't at the site when all the shooting went He's, down. He sounds like a he sounds like a sympathiser for a An terrorist apologist. or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. If he's he's interpreting what he's seeing and then expressing it as such, almost to validate his friends his friend that had done something wrong, to try to get him off it, to try to excuse his actions. It sounds like an apologist or sympathiser. There's yeah. there's another way around it or. I don't know. I don't but I think he's also feeling guilty because, as well, he's, as I said, this guy wasn't at the, the when it all happened. And he said afterwards, if I'd have been there, I could have stopped it. People's lives have been shattered. I don't know if he's over blowing his own importance. There were a lot of people that supported him that were there. There was one guy who was also a friend. He had a big row with the planning officer. I've, kept, I've not followed it up because it, was, it didn't fall through. But that he almost came to blows with them, trying to defend Albert's right to, you know, there were plenty of people there. So, no. But I think the last words on this should go to a member of the victim's family, Harry's older brother, Roy Collinson. And he told the Northern Echo, whenever he went up in front of the probation service, he never showed not one bit of remorse. I had letters sent to me by Albert Dryden, which he had no business to do, but he still did. And he tried to justify it by blaming everyone else. He tried to blame the solicitors, the police and various other things. In every letter without exception, he tried to pass the blame on to someone else. They were written in his own hand. It was the ravings of a madman. If that county councillor had been a bit livelier and the planning committee had heard, had the job done properly and not put it on my brother, we would have had none of this. Not once did he show any remorse, culpability or regret for what he'd done. He looked to blame everyone but himself. At one stage, he even tried to blame the vehicles that were going to knock down his house, claiming they were not taxed or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. I get so annoyed when people try to rewrite history and look at things from a different angle. Angle. Different ankle. Ankle. No excuses could be made for what Albert Dryden did. He murdered a defenceless man. I get mad people. He was just an, saying he was just an old man with white hair and a beard. He was a bloody murderer. The man was crackers all his life. He added, Good riddance. I hope this is the end of it. I know it won't ever be for Harry's family, but I hope it is for me. I wish I'd never heard of Albert Dryden. I think his sentence was so long, like we said, was and it was one of these until he's no longer a, a, a risk to the public. But I also wonder if the sentencing was because it was wounding the police officer and we yeah, can probably. be really... That, that never goes well in our legal system. It was also said that Albert, um, when he was when he was in prison, he had his IQ tested because they weren't... You know, he, yeah. he diminished responsibility. It was considered below average... But there's no mention, maybe at the time it was, but there was no mention of any learning disabilities or any diagnosis of any kind, of any mental problems, although he did try and claim diminished responsibility at trial. He could have possibly had some mental disorder that was untreatable and would also remain a danger to the public. Maybe that's why they didn't let him out. So that is the case of Albert Dryden and Harry Collinson. So, thank you very much for listening to the Murder Me Monday podcast. We'll see you next time. Peace.